Now, uh, church, I have a quick update, um, really a church update that I would like to bring to us this morning. One, before we dive into the Word of God, I've been wrestling a little over a week with how I was going to address our church. Um, please don't panic, I'm not leaving. Um, I saw the look in some of your eyes. Church, a little over a week ago, the Supreme Court overturned uh, Roe v. Wade in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. This decision removed federal protection for the practice of elective abortions, and that decision had been anticipated for many weeks. And rightly so, it is monumental. For those of us who have longed to see our nation protect the unborn, there is a reason for us today to rejoice. I am personally overwhelmed and I'm thankful for the bold stance that our Supreme Court took for the human rights of the unborn as all people are made in God's image and they are worthy of life. For nearly 50 years, believers in this nation have prayed for an end to abortion. And with that possibility more real now than it has been in years, some may assume that the church's work is over, but it's not. Church the work is not over. Last week's ruling has various implications for each state, but here in our own great state of Michigan, for instance, abortion will remain legal in many cases unless something changes. Yes, the decision marks a significant step, but church, the journey is forever long for us. I join with the countless voices that were heard as well as those yet to be heard someday and giving God glory for his sovereign hand in this historical decision by our Supreme Court. However, Christians everywhere ought to humbly celebrate, humbly celebrate this decision to overturn the 1973 ruling of Roe v. Wade. That decision removes the federal constitutional right to an abortion and it returns the abortion laws to states, some of which have already restricted or banned abortion altogether. Now, in addition to the saving of countless lives, this decision also positions the church more fully to intercede on behalf of God's mercy for our nation in order to, re to reverse the sin epidemic in our culture. Church, Scripture tells us that when innocent blood is shed, we can expect more innocent blood in the society to be shed through violence and oppression. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. And at the heart of the abortion debate stands what we call in the Christian circles the Imago Dei or the image of God. Attacking the unborn is a tantamount attack against God since all life is created in his image according to scripture, including life that is developing in the womb. Church, let us not lose sight of the fact that the Imago Dei, the image of God, equally applies to protecting the dignity of people once they are born. God values all life, church. Amen? God values all life. And the same fervor and the same passion that we have applied to the saving of babies in the womb must also be given to working against anything that demeans the value of life at any stage. 
All forms of the denial of justice and human dignity must be viewed and addressed in the terms of and with respect to the image of God. Which means we as a church will take the stand that we will advocate for all life from the womb to the tomb. From the womb to the tomb, church. For the last several weeks leading up to this decision and over the last week, my wife and I have prayed that we as a church would have courage and compassion for the road ahead. We've been praying that this church will join with the incredible work of the Pregnancy Support Center all throughout, not just our country, but here in our state. We've been praying that our church would be a people that would take up the painful and beautiful work of fostering and adopting and saying yes to the children that have only known society's no. We've been praying that Christ will, con will continue to work in our lives, that we will love women who are in crisis, that we will draw them in rather than cast them out. Our prayer has been, church, that as the people of Christ, we will continue to defend the vulnerable wherever they live and that we would not grow weary in our efforts of doing what is right. Our prayer has also been that we will be what we have always been called to be and that is the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Church, let us love those who are in crisis. Let us speak truth even when it's unpopular. Let us pray and labor and believe God for his kingdom to come. Not someday in the future, but right here and right now. May it be in our community of Ionia as it is in heaven. And church, I, I plead with you. I plead with you this morning to please join me. Not because of anything that has come down from Washington, D.C., my hope now, as always, comes from a small hill outside of Jerusalem. I have an unswerving hope, and it's in the unshakable power of Jesus Christ. On Calvary that day, Christ became weak and vulnerable and broken for you and I. He laid down his life to rescue us so that we could lay down our lives to bring that rescue to other people. And so church, to the unborn, we bring that rescue by offering them protection when they are most vulnerable. Church, to the women that are considering abortion, we bring that rescue by telling them there is hope in Jesus Christ and they can choose life and we as a church are here to help. Church, to the woman who has abortion as a part of her story, we bring that rescue by telling them that Jesus came to forgive and make all things new. And to those of you who would fall into the political category of the Republican or the Democrat or the Libertarian or the whatever other party you so affiliate with. We can disagree on many things, but we must stand united in our commitment to truth and to protect the most vulnerable and the weakest in our culture. So let us not forget 
what the Lord requires of us as a people. But we do justice, we love mercy, and we walk humbly. Amen, church? If you would please turn with me in your Bible to James chapter 1. I'm really glad that you've taken the time to be with us for the kickoff of this new series. It's always an exciting time when we launch into a new season here at the well where we all have the opportunity to think about what the Lord might want to do in and through us here in this next season of life. I'm sure that we will have a variety of men and women and teenagers here from a spiritual perspective. Some who may say that they have been followers of Christ for a long time, where others would say they're not quite sure if they're ready to take the leap or the step. And then we will have people everywhere in between those two categories. And a part of the great news this morning is that God will meet you wherever you are. And secondly, that God has no intention of leaving you there. Amen, church? God will meet you where you are, but has no intention of leaving you where you're at. You could summarize our mission statement here at the well as trying to connect people to God. We take that mission in part from what Jesus said after his death, burial, and resurrection. It's what we call here in church or in the Christian circles, the Great Commission. It's the verses that we have plastered right here on the back wall of our worship center. It says, and it will hit the screen, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We want to give people here in our church and those that we come in contact with a right opinion of God. We want to focus people's attention on God's character and God's beauty and God's power and his majesty. It's exactly what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So our hope and prayer as a church is that as God is glorified by the way he enables us to live, that others will want to connect with him. And I believe that's what Paul meant when he said in Ephesians 1.6, to the praise and the glory of God's grace. I think Paul explained, explained it even better than that when he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him, so God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Church, the good news this morning is that God is still drawing men and women and teenagers and children to himself through the church, learning and living out biblical truth. And so if you've not come to a place this morning where you have made this decision to follow Christ, or you have questions about what it means, we're ready to talk to you. 
We're ready to talk to you in whatever setting makes you most comfortable because there is nothing more important than being able to say that I know, that I know, that I know I'm going to heaven for eternity. And if you wonder if that's even possible, is it even possible to go to heaven for eternity? I want to share with you a, a beautiful truth this morning. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son, so that you may have eternal life. So that you may have eternal life. God will meet you, church, wherever you are. And even though He is holy, and in our sinfulness we fall far short of His righteous demands, He chose to meet us with mercy and with grace and forgiveness through the substitutionary death of his son. That's what Paul meant when he said he became sin who knew no sin. And we come to him not by our own merit, but with empty hands and repentance and faith, asking for forgiveness and mercy. But what happens after that? What happens after we come in faith to God? Well, the second part of that statement, God has no intention of leaving you where you're at. And he has no intention. But what does that even mean? Well, God stands ready to help us grow. It's why the last recorded words of Peter were this, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and, Je our Lord and, and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen, church. And that's why in Matthew chapter 28, 20, Jesus told the disciples before he ascended, teach them to observe all things that I have commanded. And that's part of the Great Commission. That's why churches like us still exist. Paul explained it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. That to some he gave as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry. Why? So that we could attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man measured to the stature of which belongs to the fullness of God. Meaning that we are to grow up in him. Now listen church, I've had, I've had the privilege of serving here as your lead pastor for about a year and a half. And one of the greatest delights of ministry, in my opinion, is, is being able to watch men and women and teenagers and children uh, come to know Christ and then begin the process of growing and changing. And every single time that has happened, not just here, but in my ministry life, God is glorified and people are helped. God is glorified and people are helped. I believe another way that you could, you could summarize our mission statement here at the well is that we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching all men in all wisdom. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 goes on to say, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I labor and I strive according to his power which mightily works within me. The beauty of that verse, or those verses, the beauty of the Christian life, the beauty of our church is that there is a place 
in this process for every single person. There's a place. And there's always additional ways to grow. Amen, church? That was really weak. There are always additional ways to grow. Amen, church? That's why our theme for the next several weeks is going to be growth and change. Growth and change. We want to use the well as a platform on which the gospel is proclaimed and effective soul care can be provided for every follower of Jesus Christ to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Now, this series is going to be one that is going to be unlike anything that we've ever done here in the last 18 months. This is going to be a series that will help us continue in the process of growth and change. For the first time since I have been here, we are going to do a verse-by-verse study of the book of James. Uh, a book that um, I believe is going to benefit us in the long-run health of our church. It is a, a book and a series that we are going to title Roots. Roots, it's time to grow deeper. It is time to grow deeper. Now, church, I, I hope that you will make the commitment to be with us as frequently and as often as possible over the next several weeks as we work through this book together. I'm also going to challenge you right now out of the gate to read these five chapters in the book of James in one sitting at least once a week, every single week during our series with the goal of mastering its content, but then also seeking with the power and the enablement of Christ to find as many ways possible that we can practically apply what we're learning in the book of James. Listen, the good news for us today is this is one of the simplest books in the Bible to understand. There are very few interpretive challenges, and we will cross those bridges once we get to them. But any person, even if you're brand new to studying the Word of God, can benefit from the book of James. Now, we want to work on today, hopefully the first 12 verses. And today I want you to write, for those of you who are note takers, growing in our response to trials. Growing in our response to trials. It's going to be the topic that we cover today. Now, I realize, I realize that you might be sitting in here today, you might be watching online, and you might say, well, that's why I have trouble growing. I have trouble growing because of the trials in my life. Does anyone ever feel like they take two steps forward and then, bam, something happens and you take three steps back? All for honesty in church. Listen, everybody feels that way. If you didn't raise your hand, you liar. You take two steps forward and bam, something comes into your life and it knocks you back three steps and you have no idea where it came from or how it happened and you think to yourself, what is going on? But what if? What if I were to tell you this morning that trials and troubles weren't something that should knock you back three steps, but if we respond to them biblically, it makes you stronger? Would you believe me, church? 
Or would you think, is that even possible? Is it even possible for my trial, for my circumstance, for my tribulation, for my pain, my suffering, my sorrow? Is it possible? Is it possible that it can make me stronger? You heard Melinda earlier read through the first 12 verses of James chapter 1, and we're going to be talking about growing in response to those trials. And with the time remaining, with the time remaining, we're going to look at three resources that we have available to us from this portion of Scripture that help us to handle trials well. Three resources. Now, before we work through it, I kind of need to lay a little bit of groundwork about this book the book of James. If you are new to studying the Bible, um, the question may arise, and maybe for those of you who have been in church for a long period of time and you really don't know about the author of the book of James, well, the answer to the question, who is James, might surprise you. James was one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Now, we use the term half-brother because um, the Old Testament predicted and the New Testament affirmed that Christ was conceived through the Holy Spirit, through the Virgin Mary. So it's very important for us theologically to know that as the sin nature is passed down from generation to generation, the normal procreation process for Jesus had to change. So James was a son of Mary and Joseph. Jesus was the son of the Holy Spirit and Mary prior to her having any other kids. Now, God wanted his son to become a man yet without sin so that he could eventually die in our place as the perfect and unblemished lamb. There had to be an an interruption to that normal process. But scripture verifies for us that Mary and Joseph had other children. Mark chapter 6 says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and his brothers, James, Judas, and Simon? And not his sisters? Aren't they here with us as well? And if, as if that is not amazing enough that James is the half-brother of Jesus. Scripture also tells us that Jesus' siblings, including James, did not initially believe that Jesus was the Messiah. We know from John chapter 7, That it says that his brothers were not believing of him. Now, in fact, Mark, the gospel writer, reports that his siblings thought Jesus had lost his senses. They thought Jesus was crazy for thinking that he was the Messiah. That included James. But aren't you thankful that James did not remain in that unbelieving condition? He made a decision to follow Christ after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1. So then it leads to the question, why did James believe? Why did he believe? Well, Paul tells us why he believed. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, after the resurrection, Paul states that Jesus appeared to James and then to the other apostles. He went to his brother Before he went to his disciples, he went to his brother. He appeared to his brother. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean? Well, this summer, we plan to study a book written by the brother of Jesus who was a personal eyewitness of the resurrection. A personal eyewitness. Do you know James goes on, if you study out his life, James goes on to become the pastor of the first 
in one of the largest churches in Jerusalem. He presides over what we call the Jerusalem Council all throughout the book of Acts. And if you remember the book of Acts, when Peter was miraculously released from prison, he met with the disciples who were hiding and praying for his release. And at the very end, they say, go and report these things to James and the brethren. The disciples were saying, go tell your pastor what has happened. He's the one who's been praying for you. And, and, that, and that's especially in focus if you go and continue on in the book of Acts. Why? Because by that point, Peter had seen the vision that the Gentiles were going to be grafted into the Jewish church. And it was only, only by the leadership of James that Gentiles were even allowed to worship with the Jews. Because he was the lead pastor. He was the head of the council. It's kind of scary because there was a fuss that occurred. A huge fuss that occurred. That amounted to um, a church business meeting. Anybody in here ever been to a church business meeting? Or a board meeting? You have a bunch of papers that are stacked together. And you have a bunch of topics that you got to go through. And sometimes it feels like time will never end, right? And so they amount to some church board meeting that they get together. And, and James stops the board meeting and he says, brethren, listen to me. He takes leadership and ownership. And because I, I look at the life of James, and before we even dive into this book, we need to understand that this, this story of James ought to give us great hope. It ought to give us great hope this morning if we're really serious about the matter of changing and growing. Why? Look how far this man came. Look how far this man came, refusing to believe his own brother to becoming not just the pastor, but the leader of the Jerusalem council. The one who would impact thousands upon thousands of people. And it means a lot. It means a lot. Why? Because James knew a lot about the process of changing and growing. So who was James writing to? And when did he write this? Well, let's look back at verse number one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now I want us to just stop right there. It's important for us to point out this morning that the early church was predominantly Jewish. And that's why this book is believed to have been written very early, around 44 AD. It is, and this is going to blow your mind for those of you who have been in church and you've probably not heard this. James is the first book that was written in the New Testament. It was written prior to the Gospel of Matthew. Prior. It was the first book that was written in the New Testament. And because James does not mention anything about Gentiles, nor the church, or the Jerusalem council, we can verify that it was the first written book. Why? Because the Jerusalem council and the church didn't come until five years later. And why were these people dispersed? Well, there was immediate persecution in the church. What happened to one of the deacons of the church, a man named Stephen? He was stoned to death. And we know from historical records that James was the second individual in our timeline that is persecuted and martyred and put to death following Stephen for his love of Jesus Christ. Now listen, in Acts chapter 8, we know that Saul, 
or who we would know as Paul, the writer of more than half of the New Testament, it says this, that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. Saul wanted Christians killed and persecuted before he converted. And so Jewish people who chose to believe in Christ were persecuted and dispersed. And so James is writing to the believers. James is writing to the believers to help them grow in the midst of persecution, trial. And James does not waste any time getting after it. Look at verse number two. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various or trials of various kinds. James is commanding people just like you and me to count it. Or the the Hebrew and Greek word here would be to choose to consider it joy. Choosing to consider it joyful when a trial comes into one's life. Now I want to pause and I want to say that none of the things that I am saying today are done glibly. None. Part of being in a church family is that there's always going to be a brother or a sister who is experiencing deep water. But even with that in mind, there is a command. There is a command from someone who had positioned himself, according to the very first verse, as a servant of Jesus Christ. And he says, rejoice when trials and testings come. Why? Well, follow the logic because of what testing produces. Look at verse number three. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what, church? Steadfastness, or some versions say endurance. And so today, I want us to look at these three resources as we begin to work through the rest of this chapter. And the first resource I want us to see this morning, and it will hit the screen for you, is the resource of endurance. The resource of endurance. James says that the reason that we can actually rejoice during a time of trial is because of the endurance that it can produce in us if we handle it well. Now, can we all be honest, for just, all for honesty in church? All two of us. Great. Let's try that again. All for honesty in church. That means you, balcony. That means you online. Don't you think, don't you think Counting it all joy is a little counterintuitive. Would you guys agree with me? Counting it all joy is counterintuitive. Why? Because none of us automatically rejoice when a trial comes into our life. And if you do automatically rejoice and your sin nature just somehow passes away, please come and see me because I want to know what you're doing. All right, it is not natural for us to automatically rejoice in the midst of our trials And then maybe that's why we're not growing at the rate that God intends for us to grow. Listen, if you're in the habit of writing in your Bible, I want you to do something for me this morning. I want you to circle the words, count it, in verse number two, and the word know, as in K-N-O-W, in verse number three. I want you to circle both of those words. And then I want you to draw a line somehow connecting both of them together. Those two words come from the Greek phrase gnoskos. And it means, it means to have a full understanding of something that is beyond the mere facts. And it often comes from personal experience. Gnosko. I know because I've walked through this. 
The point is, is that we can genuinely rejoice during a time of trial, or we can't, sorry, we can't genuinely rejoice during a time of trial unless you truly know that that trial tests your faith and develops something in your character that is way more valuable than the pleasure of not having a trial. You know, James wants the reader to know that God stands ready to develop endurance in your heart and lives. And so church, joyful endurance that flows out out of a vibrant and passionate relationship with Christ is a delightful commodity in this life. You know, we, we have so many examples here in our church in our church family. And I don't, I don't say that simply to commend the people in our church, but to praise God that he makes that kind of endurance possible. Several weeks ago, um, oh, it's been like almost, I guess it's been like seven weeks now. Seven weeks ago, I showed up at 8.15 a.m. for an oncology appointment to have scans done, to get blood work done. And this journey with, with two different types of cancer has not been easy. It's been a journey where I've had days that I have felt like I couldn't go another minute. I've had moments where I just wanted to eat and I knew I couldn't. I had moments where when going through hormone therapy, I felt like I was a PMSing woman. I cried at everything for no reason. I felt dizzy. I've been in pain constantly. And at multiple times, I've asked and begged of God if I could just be really real and really raw and honest with you this morning. I've asked God to either take it away or take me away. I can't do it anymore. And I begged and begged and begged. But at my last doctor's visit, I walked into the front desk and I'm greeted by the same people every single time that I'm there. And I walked in and they have these two volunteers that work there, these, these two guys that I call the Jeffs. Both of them are named Jeff. Jeff Baker and Jeff Griggs. And both of these men are volunteering at the cancer center in Grand Rapids. And I see them every single time that I'm there. And both of these men are dealing with terminal cancers. Both of these men, thank you. Both of these men are dealing with terminal cancers. They're not said to live beyond the end of this year. They have kids, they have grandkids, they have wives. And every single time I show up to that doctor's office, they're both standing there with the biggest and the brightest smiles on their face. Every time. And they, they have not forgotten my name once. I walk in and they're like, how's Pastor Cahill doing today? And sometimes I really want to scream. I just really want to yell. I want to tell them that life sucks. And before two words come out of my mouth, the one, Jeff Baker, he goes, he goes, Pastor, I have to tell you this great, great story before you go in to see your doctor. And I was like, what, what happened now, Jeff? 
And through the process of the last several months, I've come to find out that both of these men are believers in Jesus Christ. And their, their personality and their love for God is so infectious. And so Jeff goes, I have to tell you this awesome story. So I'm, I'm like, okay, tell me. You have 12 seconds before that door opens and they call me in the room. And he goes, I'll tell Ann to wait, who's one of the nurses. So he goes, Pastor, he goes, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with three different people this week. Right here in this doctor's office. And all three of them chose to follow Christ. Right, as a pastor, as a, as a believer, you would think that in my heart, I would be leaping for joy. Like, and like God would just like burst out of me and I would be oozing with all this joy and, and peace. And, and in my heart, I didn't want to say anything except for like, you trying to show off, Jeff? And as I walked down the hallway to get to the room where they were going to start drawing my blood for that, that visit... I had this thought that these two men are constantly filled with God's peace. They're constantly filled with this overwhelming sense of joy, knowing that my time is almost done here on this earth, but my work is not done until I'm gone. And as I go into that room and I sit down, Jeff Griggs comes into the room. And he goes, you seem a little off today. Are you okay? And I said, I just want to know. I just want to know how you have that. How is it that you can be in this constant state of just peace? Knowing that your life is going to end here physically like you're not going to be with your wife and your kids anymore your grandkids and he goes man pastor because God gives me the strength to joyfully and faithfully serve him every single moment of every single day and I'm like man that's endurance that is what James says that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And that is a great commodity that God says that every single one of us can have. Every one of us can grow in and every one of us can develop. But then the question is then posed to us, do we value endurance? Do we value it? A mentor and friend of mine used to say that my values determine my evaluations. And for a long time, I was like, what are you even talking about? It sounds like some philosophical garbage. My values determine my evaluations. But the longer I thought about it, the longer I begin to work through this process over the last eight or nine months, I've come to realize that if I value comfort more than character, then trials are always going to upset me. If I value the material and the physical well-being more than the spiritual, then I will never be able to count it all joy, church. If you live only for the present, church, and you forget about the future, then your trials will not make it you better, it will make you bitter. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that a bitter heart leads to the destruction of mankind. 
And so if we're here today, we must see endurance as a thing that takes the believer somewhere else. It takes us, look back at verse number four and see what James says. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Why? So that you're lacking nothing. You're lacking nothing. Do you know there's a kind of maturity that comes through joyfully facing the trials that does not come in any other way? There's a a pretty obvious series of questions that comes flowing out of all of this, isn't there? Like church, Christian, friend, friend in this room. Do you have some growing to do in this area? Do you have some growing to do? What about the issue of rejoicing when we encounter various trials? What and, and when you struggle, is it possible that you value temporal comfort and pleasure more than the development of patient endurance? Now, we might say things like, this life is too hard and I can't understand this, especially in the midst of the fire, when the fire is raging. And well, that takes us to our next resource, doesn't it? The resource of wisdom. The resource of wisdom. You know, the book of James is often called wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. It reads very similar if you've ever studied the book of Proverbs. The book of James reads quite similar to the book of Proverbs. And praise be to God that his word is written in that way. And and I was telling the prayer team this morning that it reminded me of Psalm chapter 19 that said the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul and making wise the simple. Making wise the simple. One of my prayers, and please do not take offense to this, but one of my prayers for the last several weeks about our church is that God would make the simple wise that he would make and take the simple minds and make them wise, full of his wisdom. And church, this book also has so many similarities to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. And James, you'll often possibly hear me call this book uh, James's Sermon on the Mount. There are 21 references in James's book here in five chapters to the Sermon on the Mount. Now remember, this book was written long before the Gospel of Matthew ever took place or was ever written. And although James would have heard many renditions of the Sermon on the Mount, the matter of the fact is, is that the Sermon on the Mount gives a series of tests of the way a genuine follower of Christ will live. And that's also true here in the book of James. You can tell whether a person's faith is genuine in part by how they respond to their trials. How they respond. And when they lack wisdom, we need in order to respond well, there's a command to ask. Look back at verse number five. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. When is the last time, church, that you remember during one of your trials pausing and asking God to give you the wisdom to handle that situation well? And also, which would you rather have? It's a question. Uh, stop, stop writing for a moment and give me your attention. There's a question here that we must answer. Balcony, we must answer. Online, we must answer. 
Would, would we rather have immediate relief from our trials or wisdom endurance that helps us handle those trials well? Which would we rather have? Immediate relief or wisdom and endurance that helps us handle it well? You know, there, there's a promise of God. There's a promise that comes. And I've thought to myself oftentimes, how does God's promise to treat us? Like, what does he say if we ask him a question? What does he say? Does he roll his eyes and shake our head and disgust like our teenagers do? No, not at all. He gives a promise. If any of you lacks in wisdom, let him ask of God who does what. But he gives generously and without reproach. He gives generously. Church, there are a lot of wise men and women running around here in our church family. And where did they get that wisdom? But from God of heaven and earth, oftentimes during their trials. But there's a condition that has to be met in order to receive that, that wisdom. Look at, look at verse number 6. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. The, the condition here is consistently asking in faith. Consistently asking. Listen, developing the importance of surrounding ourselves with wise people as a means of growth and providing support and accountability and friendship are necessary to this life, to handling trials well. Listen, I, I believe it was a week or so ago where I asked on social media, um, how many of you, um, you have an excuse or use an excuse to not discipling someone or being discipled? And I talked about how Lone Ranger Christianity, Lone Ranger Christianity makes false Christians or Christians who are weak in their faith. God never intended this life for us to be an island unto ourselves. God never intended this life to be just you and you alone. Why? Because you need to be reminded of God's truth just as much as I do. And sometimes that comes best through, best through the mouth of a friend. Church, I'm going to make a generalized statement and I'm not directing this at any one person here. The wisest man to live outside of Jesus Christ himself said the one who rejects wisdom is stupid. The one who rejects wisdom is stupid. Don't shoot the messenger. I didn't pen it. The Holy Spirit gave it to Solomon. And if I believe that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, I believe it to be true. And because I believe it to be true, then I must live by that truth. So I'm telling you as a pastor here today, you need to have somebody else. And sometimes that somebody else can't be your spouse because you already want to wrangle their neck. We're just being honest, right? You need somebody else. God offers to his children endurance and wisdom. 
And the last one I want us to see as we begin to land this, this plane here is the reward or the, res, the resource of reward. The resource of reward. You know, the last couple of verses here in this section explain the temporary nature that so many of the things that we have that cause us to lose joy. Like we worry about things. We get mad about things that are going to pass away with time. The temporary nature uh, of man's pursuits. Look at verse number nine. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Do you know, that's why, that's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not store up for yourselves treasures upon this earth where moth and rust will destroy them where the thief will break in and steal it. Why? He said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust will destroy or where thieves will be able to break in and steal it. How many of our so-called trials really involve something that is going to rust away anyways? Was that really worth being robbed of joy and endurance and wisdom? But God's word tells us that there is an eternal nature in God's promises, and those come with rewards. Look at verse 12, and this is where we're going to stop. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man. Church, that verse did not say blessed is the man who is never tempted. The Bible does not say blessed is the man who finds all temptation easy to conquer. Instead, the promise of blessedness is given to the one who endures temptation. There's a, there's a special gift of blessedness from God to the one who can say no to temptation and say yes to God. And as we persevere through that temptation, we become approved and we're rewarded by the work of God in us. Why? Because it becomes evident that we have resisted the temptation of the flesh, of the world, of Satan. And in this case, church, James is saying blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed is the man. There's a reward that James saw, and in his specific case, you know, James did not have to wait long for that promise to be fulfilled in his life. There are two Jewish historians, Josephus and Eusebius. These two men tell us that James was martyred less than 20 years after he wrote those words. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. They say and it is recorded that James, the half-brother of Jesus, was taken to the top of the temple and was thrown off. And that when his body hit the cement, that he was still alive and that he was clubbed the rest of the way to death with sticks and stones. Isn't it wonderful that James did not face his brother as a man who never believed. Isn't it wonderful that 
that James did not face his brother as one who never rejoiced. Yes, it is a sobering thought that James was thrown to his death and then beaten the rest of the way there. But as I thought about this, what I thought was that James, James faced his brother, the promised Messiah, as a man who believed. As a man who rejoiced in the midst of persecution. And as a man who developed endurance and wisdom. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God promised to those who believe. Church, would you please stand with me this morning? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The only way that we grow in our response to trial is allowing the trial to produce endurance, which leads to the asking of wisdom, which leads to the reward of obedience. We are in a time, church, in which our culture is removing more and more of God from everything. The persecution that the Western church faces today is nowhere near the persecution that the early church faced. Nowhere near the persecution of Christians in other countries. In fact, two nights ago, my wife and I were looking at statistics through a missions organization that explained to us um, the top 50 most dangerous countries for Christians to be in. The mission organization proceeded to explain that every six seconds in one of these 50 countries, a Christian is beheaded just by saying, I believe in Christ. No longer allowed to live, no longer allowed to profess, no longer allowed to share the gospel, no longer allowed to hold their children, to see their grandchildren, to work, to provide for their spouses. Life completely removed. And yet James said there is a way for us to persevere. Church, it's time right now that we begin to learn endurance. It's time right now, church, for us to begin to seek wisdom. There's going to come a time where things could get very, very dangerous for us as believers. And I don't mean to stand here and try to scare you because that's not my attempt. I believe we need to be prepared. We think our culture was bad because of the shedding of innocent blood through abortions and because of the stance that our culture takes with homosexual relations and marriages 
Things will get worse, church. Things are going to get worse, and we must be prepared with truth so that we are not led astray, so that we are not led astray. And it starts right here. That's why we're doing this series. It's time, church. It's time to grow deeper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for this day. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the heaviness of of this topic, but yet we rejoice with how your sovereign hand is moving in all parts and all pieces. God, we know that in the midst of the chaos, you're still in control. And so, Lord, we ask that you would impress upon us with strength and boldness, courage and wisdom, Lord. As we just read, we are asking God to to take steps in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our our challenges, in our circumstances, our pain, our suffering, and our loss, God, so that we can have the wisdom to know where to move forward and what steps to take. And so, God, we know that your word is a lamp for our feet, and it is a light for our path. And so help us to hide that word deep within us, deep within us into the deepest parts of us so that there is no darkness in us, that it is only light. And God, that light can shine as your word says. And so God, help us to take these truths so that we can connect people to you in everyday moments of life. God, give us divine appointments, divine encounters with people. Give us the opportunity to share the gospel. And when you do present the opportunity, God, give us the boldness and the boldness to speak. Holy Spirit, use us as your mouthpiece. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.